I try to make it a practice not to hate people. But there are some creatures that drive you to it by their very actions. I'm sure you can relate if I call a couple names. Today's case is definitely one of those instances. But it is my favorite case because the woman makes you feel so much at once. Shante Kimes was a piece of work and there's literally no proper rhyme nor reason for the things that she did other than greed and this pressure to perform. Today, we'll be covering just one of the murders that she and her son, Kenneth Kimes Jr. committed, but I encourage you to do research on the rest because the audacity of this woman knew no bounds. Grab a cold drink, friends. This one's about to be a doozy. These are the dark secrets of the dealings of the boardroom. They are often labeled as victimless and treated as subtexts in the world of crime. But we are the victims, and we deserve to know the truth. It's the only way that we can start fighting back. My name is Kushal Mike. Welcome to Scam Kings. Shante Kimes was born Shante Singers on July 24, 1934. She was born to the daughter of an Irish Pentecostal minister, Mary Van Horn, and an East Indian fair worker, Mahindra Prama Singh. The two met at the fair where Mahindra worked, and it is said that they were madly in love with each other. Despite her father's disapproval, the two married and moved to a farm where they started their life together in the 1920s. Over the next two decades, they would have four children, of which Shante was the third. As early as it is in the tale, we have to tiptoe around certain facts. You see, the trademark of Shante Kimes' adult life was her ability to twist the truth to influence outcomes in her favor. A lot of the accounts of her life and childhood have been modified to suit whatever situation she found herself in. So much so that according to her son Kent Walker, her birth certificate may have been forged. So much so that according to her first son, Kent Walker, her birth certificate may have been forged. And honestly, I'm a thousand percent convinced that she did it on purpose just so that she could continue to perplex the world, even in death. The first of these facts concerns what happened to the singer's patriarch. One is that he abandoned the family in 1937, leaving their mother with three children to care for. But this is more than likely impossible, either that or there are loopholes in the story, because Mary and Mahindra had four children with the last of the singer children, Rita, being born in 1939. Rita appeared in an interview on an A&E biography program in 2001, a couple months after Shanti, along with her son Kenneth Kimes Jr., were found guilty and imprisoned for the Irene Silverman murder. The other account, and the one that Rita supports, is that Mahindra died of heart failure the year after she was born, leaving the family without their primary breadwinner. Again, this is the account that makes more sense because of the alignment of timeline events. As to why there are two versions of what actually happened to this poor man is beyond me. But again, Shante Kimes would twist the truth to suit her own devices. Either way, the singers were forced to fill the gap that Mahindra left behind. The eldest child, Karim stepped into the position of breadwinner, yet still Mary found herself having to engage in prostitution to help keep the family afloat. 
However, Karim was less than magnanimous about his newfound position. Rita described her mother as a pushover and Karim wasted no time in taking advantage of that fact. He was verbally and physically abusive to the mother, according to Rita, and yet he was very close to Shanti. Too close. Rita alleged that Shanti may have been molested by their elder brother. I'm not going to repeat what she said because it's so disgusting. But the Cliff Notes version is that their relationship was beyond what a sibling relationship was supposed to be. It isn't said how long this continued for, but eventually Karim left home and the family behind. Shante's elder sister followed him shortly after, leaving Shante, Rita, and their mother to fend for themselves. Rita said that she was, effectively, terrified of Shante. She said that Shante was a terror to her mother whose sole focus was to keep them fed and warm. But Shanti had a horrible temper and was just overall a difficult child. Rita told of a game that Shanti invented for them to play. Shanti would sing tauntingly, it's time for the fire. This would be the signal for Rita to hold her hands out, palms down, while Shanti held a match under Rita's fingertips. Any reaction or flinch would bring out Shanti's temper and they would have to restart the game anew. Mary eventually rooted up the family and moved them to the city where they found themselves in quite a dilapidated apartment. Shante hated it because it represented everything that she didn't want to be. Poor, less than. To be fair, this could have stemmed from the fact that children in her old town ostracized her primarily because of her ethnicity and she felt the need to exact some level of revenge. But I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so that's just me thinking out loud. In 1947, however, was when she got her big break. Shanti would often sneak out of the apartment that they lived in and just disappear for days. It is said that she was out begging for money and those escapades landed her in the store of the woman who would be her future adopted aunt. Mary Chambers was visiting with her sister and in walked Shanti, who was quite the chatterbox. Mary fell in love with her almost instantly, and it wasn't long before she and her husband, Edwin, a colonel in the Special Navy, went calling to Mary Von Horn to make things official. Rita said that their mother didn't think twice. Shanti was pretty much packed off the same day and sent off with the chambers. Rita said that she and her mother danced the day that Shanti left. I don't think it would have mattered much to Shanti though who now went by Sandy Chambers. Her life was now one of comfort and flair, where she rocked the latest hairstyles and clothes. She straightened her hair so that her heritage wouldn't show, lest she be ostracized again. She wrote for a high school newspaper. She was generally well liked among her peers, and even though they said she could be intimidating at times, they all remembered her as this beautiful girl. She did have a best friend in Ruth Thumb, who everyone says was very shy and reserved. Some of them described the relationship as lopsided, with Shanti being the one who was outgoing and Ruth trailing behind her like a puppy. On the same interview by A&E, a classmate recalls Shanti and Ruth running out on the court during sport game breaks to lead the chairs, while the actual chair team was standing right behind them in utter shock. Shante was not a part of the squad, yet she insisted on stealing the spotlight from the ones who needed to be there. 
Shantae eventually graduated and not too long after married a high school sweetheart. It would be the first of three marriages, with the first two ending essentially because she was dissatisfied with the men's ability to provide the opulent lifestyle that she was obsessed with. Her second marriage produced her first child, Kent Walker, and a small fortune. Because it is alleged that she set the fire that destroyed her kitchen in the house that she shared with Kent's father and collected a $10,000 insurance payout. In any event, the marriage that we need to focus on is her last. Because not only was it the period where she really showed out, but it would produce her partner in crime. Like her two previous husbands, Kenneth Kimes fell head over heels in love with Sandy, who had by this time gone back to being called Shanti. Never mind that she was 18 years his junior, she was fun to be around and woke up another side of him. A side that wasn't necessarily great. There were a few instances where Shanti outright lied on behalf of the realistic magnate, positing that he was one government official or the other. She even managed to crash a party at the White House, hosted by then-President Gerald Ford in 1974, by simply pretending to be important. They got kicked out after the fact, but still. Probably the most outrageous thing that the couple did together was their human trafficking case. Shante, with Kenneth Sr.'s knowledge, went to Mexico to recruit young women to work for her with the promise of a better life. Instead, when they arrived at the Kimes' residence, she confiscated the women's passports, locked them out of rooms, and threatened to have them reported to the authorities should they step out of line. In that instance, Kenneth Sr. testified against her, and he received a fine along with community service while she went to prison. But let's back up a bit. Shante's relationship with her first son Kent wasn't as strong. She would make him climb through windows to steal for her and just involve him in her criminal acts. Eventually, he saw her for who she was and went to live with his biological father. However, in 1975, Shante said that she'd be getting minor surgery only to return with a baby. Kenneth Jr. was born on March 24th. And although his relationship was just as turbulent as his brother's, where their mother was concerned, Shante dug her claws so deep into his life that it was very hard for him to wiggle out. And as opposed to his half-brother's father, Kenny Sr. was very much weak-willed. Kenny Jr. was homeschooled because Shante didn't want the other children to, quote, corrupt him. And so, the first 14 years or so of his life revolved around his mother. When Shante went to prison, Kenny was able to go to school and just be normal. Classmates of his said that this was the most normal that he'd felt, the most at ease. However, Shante would serve an abbreviated sentence, and things went back to how they were. This is how it would stay for the rest of her natural life, she pulling the strings, he obeying blindly. Their career would eventually lead to one of the most prolific murder cases in the history of the US. However, we're going to talk about one of their first cases, the circumstances surrounding the murder of David Kasdan. David, Shante, and Kenneth Sr. were friends. At this point, Kenneth Sr. and Shante had already been conducting different fraud schemes inclusive of insurance fraud. David was an insurance claim adjuster who had known the kinds since the 70s. And because their friendship spanned such a long period, when they lost the lawsuit with 150 k in 1992, the couple asked that one of their property's deeds, 2121 Geronimo Way, be put in Kasdan's name. 
To his discredit, he agreed, but then he asked them to remove it. However, in 1998, when David's lawyer received a letter from a Florida bank stating that David owed a 280k mortgage, he realized that the couple had not done as initially agreed. Mind you, at this time, Kenneth Sr. had been dead for four years. Apparently, what Shante did was she was taking out little payments on the house because she couldn't sell a house that was in her name. She forged David's signature on each one of the payments. Not long after finding that out, the property at Geronimo Way burned to the ground. It didn't take long to establish that it was arson or that Shante was the one who was behind it. Apparently, she and Kenny Jr. kidnapped a homeless man, held him hostage, beat him and forced him to pretend to be the owner so that they could capitalize on the payout. Authorities started digging deeper and more and more of them found out about Shante's signature forgeries. This really put a spotlight and the squeeze on all of Shante and Kenny's, both junior and seniors, scams. It was also around this time that David started receiving threats from Shante about the note from the bank. It soon progressed to Shante and Kenny moving 16 miles away from Kasdan's house in the San Fernando Valley where they lived in an apartment together with their hostage. Some weeks after, the man who would be Kenny's accomplice in David's murder, Sean Little, moved in as well. The night before his death, Kasdan had dinner with a friend where they discussed Shante's antics. The friend didn't believe that David was in any danger at the time and said that he expressed that he was ready to retire and get away from Shante and all the madness that she brought. The friend also said that he never knew about Kenny, which is why he was even less convinced that David's life was in danger. On March 13, 1998, Kenny and Sean showed up at David's house late in the evening, where Kenny shot David multiple times. Sean would later state that he only heard the gunshots and when he ran into the house, he saw Kenny standing over David's body with a gun in his hand. They then cleaned up the place and loaded the corpse into Kasdan's Jaguar before driving his body to LAX and placing it in a dumpster. Police would discover the corpse the very next day. It was the only corpse that they would find. Shante and Kenny Jr. would be arrested on July 5th, 1998, the same day that Irene Silverman was officially reported missing. This murder is what the pair would be charged with and convicted for first. After their convictions, where Shanti received a sentence of 120 years as opposed to Kenny's 124, they were initially supposed to be extradited to California, where they faced a death penalty for David Kazin's murder in 2000. In an act of sheer desperation, Kenny held a court TV reporter hostage with a ballpoint pen for four hours, demanding that his mother not be extradited with him. Kenny was eventually extradited alone in March of 2001. And during his trial in 2004, he changed his plea to guilty, implicating his mother in the murder and basically telling all. A stark difference to what happened the year before on Larry King Live, where they stood united. They both received life sentences for David's murder. The Bedford Hills Correctional Institute for Women was where Shanti would spend the rest of her life. She died in her cell on May 19, 2014 at the age of 79. Kenny is still housed at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in California. Hey there, Scam Fam. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Scam Kings. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you did, be sure to follow Scam Kings on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And more importantly, share this episode with a friend who you think would appreciate our style of podcasting. And if you didn't, that's okay. 
I have a couple of friends who may be more up your alley and want to introduce themselves to you for the next couple of seconds. There's also something for fellow creators in the end, so be sure to listen all the way down there. Thank you once again, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Bernadette, the host from Murderific True Crime Podcast, coming to you from the state of Maine, USA. We are a bi-weekly podcast and discuss stories from Maine, New England, and all over the world. Our stories focus on domestic abuse, mass murder, familicides, cults, serial killers, kidnappings, and lesser-known cases. Murderific is easy to find on all podcast apps or go to Murderific.com. Give Murderific a try. Remember, murder and horrific equals Murderific. Do you like someone that goes from topic to topic and tries to think of interesting things to say? Well, look no further than the Chaotic Neutral podcast, where I, your host, have on solo episodes and collabs like with podcasters and have fun while I do it. I like to talk about things from cats to drinking two quarts of apple juice from just cuz. And if you are interested in my podcast, you can follow me on Twitter at KOneutralPod and Instagram at ChaoticNeutralPod. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. Following my breakdown of Stephanie Meyer's Twilight, I'll be digging deep into the raunchy Twilight fanfic turned erotic romance, Fifty Shades of Grey. Although I'm not sure romance is the best word to use. Join me every Monday and Friday for chapter by chapter analysis of the book that Salman Rushdie said made Twilight look like war and peace. You can listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links and contact information. I have a feeling that it's going to get awkward, but let's get through this together. Happy reading!